Hello and welcome to So What You're Saying Is, I'm Peter Whittle. Now with history and the academic world very much in the news, I'm delighted that my guest today is Professor Nigel Bigger. Uh, Nigel is Professor of Moral and Pastoral Theology at the University of Oxford. Um, many thanks for joining us. You're welcome, tonight. glad to be here. I want to ask something which is very sort of pertinent and quite current at the moment. Um, I believe that um, this week is the final date for public submissions on, this, on this, the statue of Cecil Rhodes yes. at Oxford. Yes. I think that this is obviously something that's been going on for a long time. Yes. Um, what is your view on, on the statue? Um, my view is that the statue has come to signify certain things about the past and the present that are untrue. Mm. So uh, Cecil Rhodes, um, turn of the 20th century, um, buccaneering capitalist, believer in British imperialism, um, is now debited with um, all the alleged sins of British colonialism. So. Uh, three or four years ago, 2015-16, when the first agitation to have his statue in Oxford High Street taken down happened, uh, 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 the, the uh, meme put about Rhodes was that he was South Africa's Hitler and that he was um, responsible for genocide in South Africa and that he was a racist. And uh, since then I've done a lot of research on Rhodes and South Africa. And historically, that is just not true. Mm. Um, but Rhodes has become a symbol of uh, colonialism and racism, and I think the, what, what motivates the agitators to try and remove him, him from his pedestal is that uh, they want to say that the fact that this racist, white supremacist, imperialist stands over Oxford's High Street, and the fact that people let that happen, um, is, is a sign that actually uh, racism reigns among us here in Britain. So it's a kind of incarnation of the racist mentality that infects the whole of Britain. And I think that's also empirically untrue. I mean, I, I don't know um, um, much, ab I don't know an awful lot about um, the situation of racism in Britain. I've no doubt it exists. Um, but just for example, um, in, in universities, um, at, at the moment, there is a, a, um, a higher proportion of black and ethnic minority students in British universities relative to the population than, than um, white British. Uh, the proportion of, of academics is slightly, the proportion of professors is slightly lower. Um, but if you're talking about uh, um, Asian uh, minority um, pr professors, the proportion of Asians relative to the population, it's higher than whites. So yeah. to, to assume that we have a, I don't, I don't know that we have a problem, but to talk as many people do, as I, I'm, I was sorry to see uh, Prince Harry talking, as if um, Britain is structurally, institutionally, essentially racist, mm. is just not true. Therefore, uh, I think the statue should stay because um, what it is said to signify, it doesn't signify. Now, if we have a, if people want to help disadvantaged um, um, minority students, then by all means let's create scholarships or do something constructive. Mm. Taking down the, the statue doesn't help anybody. 
But the point is, surely, Nigel, is that truth doesn't really play a part in any of this, does it? <laughs> I mean, you know, when you say it's just not true, I, I would say that many of the people who uh, don't like the idea of statues being taken down know instinctively it's probably not true, but the force of the argument on the other side yes. seems to make it impossible, doesn't it? Well, y yes, what you say is sadly uh, true. Um, I mean, I, I was shocked and slightly perplexed initially about um, how the educators didn't... First of all, how, how careless they were with the truth. Uh, but then, um, in early 2016, I, I published a quite a long essay in Stampart magazine um, uh, setting out what I thought to be the truth about roads uh, and, you know, giving chapter and verse and whatever. And the response I got to that article was nothing. I mean, no one has responded to it. Really? Um, I'm told that the, um, there was a, um, a quotation that was being um, put around in 2015-16 um, uh, that was alleged to have come from Rhodes in which he um, appears to advocate the killing of, of as many Africans as possible. Um, in my article, I, I dismantled that quotation and, and pointed out that, in fact, it's a it's a fabrication of three different elements, one of which was fiction. Uh, I'm told that that uh, quotation has now come down off the Rosemus Fall website. I've not checked for myself. So uh, there has been some reaction, but, but there's been no, as it were, rational reaction. So uh, you're right. Um, um, it's, it's been a bit of a, um, um, a lesson for a naive academic like me that um, politics doesn't always run on truth. <laughs> maybe maybe that doesn't, doesn't surprise you quite so much. Um, yeah. But but so then it becomes, uh, of course, politics, whether it's, you know, Rose Must Fall agitation or other kinds of wokery or whether it's Scottish nationalism, uh, runs heavily on emotion. Mm. And the question is, uh, when emotions are running high, uh, what's a reasonable person to do? <laughs> well, there was a very good example of that. I mean, I know you've talked about it a lot before, but uh, you wrote a piece well in The Times, didn't you, in 2017, uh, which was basically putting forward that, and please correct me if I'm wrong, that we need a more nuanced attitude to colonialism. Yes. Um, and that meant looking at the maybe the good and the bad. And uh, from what I can see, you were greeted with a tsunami, weren't you? First yes. of all, of students and then of academics, basically yes. criticising you. Yes, that that that's right. That was that was just over three years ago, and so um, again, I, I was shocked at the intemper intemperate uh, and and careless reaction of academics. Yeah, I yes. mean, and people from Cambridge and London and even Oxford. Um, so I I, I responded as carefully as I could to some of the claims they made in writing. And again, I noticed that uh, no one responded to what I had said, but some people kept on um, belaboring the fact that, uh, or, or just, just, just um, labeling, labeling me as racist, racist and white supremacist, simply because I, I held what I thought was a pretty moderate and anodyne view that the British Empire contained good as well as bad. I mean, right now I'm in the process of writing a book about that, and, and actually I think it contained rather more good than bad. Um, when, when's the book out, actually? Uh, late next year. Well, will you come back and talk to us about that? Absolutely, I'd love to. Be great. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I really would. Like that. Can I ask uh, as well, Nigel, on, on this front, um, 
I think people would agree with you when they're being rational, if they are, that that is the case about the British Empire. Um, but would you just give us some instances, therefore, of how you think it was a good thing? Uh, we're hearing at the moment yes, about of all the evil, but what would you say were virtues and the good things? Well, there are two things, Peter, I'd, I'd, I'd pick out. I mean, at the moment, uh, you will notice that the, the phrase um, colonialism and slavery is running around um, all sorts of institutions, you know, national trust, museums, are keen to make the, uh, the, the uncomfortable bits of British history plain and to expose this. Now, putting those two together, of course, rather implies that colonialism is slavery. Okay? Now, so the, there's a half-truth there. The half-truth is that, um, yes, the British Empire in its early days, for 200 years from the early 1600s to the very early 1800s, was involved in the slave trade. That is true. That was awful. Lots of Brits, starting in the second half of the 1700s, began to think it was awful. And um, as is quite well known, people like William Wilberforce and others spent 50 years, first of all, uh, working to, to have the slave trade abolished, and then the institution of slavery in the, in the empire. So uh, between us and slavery is that. So, so why are we identified with what went before then and not with the 50 years of, of endeavor? And it was, it, it was the, the abolitionist movement was a very popular movement. It wasn't just you know, highfalutin MPs. It was, it was, there were popular petitions going to parliament. But then here's another thing. From 1807, when the slave trade was, was uh, abolished um, in the empire until the end of the British empire in the 1950s and 60s, the British Empire was consistently and actively committed to suppressing slavery, um, the slave trade across the Atlantic, across the Indian Ocean, in Latin America, in Africa, in Asia. Um, so, th so the first thing I'd say, uh, what was good about the British Empire was, we repented of slavery 200 years ago. Mm. And we then spent the, the, the best part of a century and a half suppressing it all over the world. So let's remember you know, the bad bit. Let's also remember the more recent good bit. So that's the first thing. The second thing I, I, can, I can say much more briefly, and that is uh, that um, between May 1940 and June 1941, the only major military power in the field against European fascism, with the exception of Greece, was the British Empire. So. Yes. Yeah, I, I think there's, a, there's I, I mean, let's be clear, uh, in the course of the 300 odd years of the British Empire, bad things happened, some terrible things happened, but then if you look at the history of any nation state mm. of long standing, um, even, even, you know, bright new shiny liberal Sweden has skeletons in its historical cupboard. Mm. We all do. Were there any other things that you would sort of point to that were sort of not responses to a situation such as obviously the rise of Hitler, but were infrastructural things or, or philosophical things that yes. were a good thing about the empire? Yes, so, so two things. I mean, Britain from the 1840s uh, was committed to free trade around the world. Um, and um, the evidence is that 
Yes, on the one hand, that what that meant was that uh, British manufacturers of cotton could put um, uh, some Indian peasants who were producing uh, um, less fine co cotton out of business, that's true, but it also allowed um, Indian entrepreneurs to come to Britain to look at manufacturing in Manchester, to, to take the machinery back to India, to import the expertise, to set up steel factories in Bombay that then outcompeted Manchester. Right. Right. So, so, um, um, and if you, if you look at uh, the statistics of um, wages and infant mortality in Africa from 1910 to 1960, uh, certainly in East Africa and West Africa, um, there, there's a, um, a consistent, not dramatic, but consistent increase. So in other words, uh, health and, and wealth did increase slowly. So there's that. Philosophically, of course, um, um, Britain, in terms of political philosophy, uh, Britain has been a home of liberal political philosophy. Uh, uh, the notion that, that the political freedom is really vital, uh, the notion of representative institutions. And so uh, um, when, uh, for example, uh, Indians like uh, Gandhi or uh, Nehru came to study in Cambridge or, or London, um, they imbibed these liberal views, took them back to India, and then used them against British rule. <laughs> so, so uh, in a sense, we were we were the author of our, of our own demise. But, uh, but the, the empire was always um, in kind of two minds. I mean, there was always a liberal streak in it that then actually put imperialists on, on the back foot when Indian nationalists started saying, "Well, you know, live up to your liberal uh, yes. your, your liberal credentials." There are also two other aspects. I mean, perhaps they're too superficial in in their reading, but. There's the view that the British Empire almost came about by accident, you know, that it, you know, it, it sort of just kind of organically uh, emerged. Yes. And also that the manner in which it went was very significant. I mean, you know, yes. throughout this post-war period, it, the ease with which the British just simply let. Yes. Uh, I mean, they sort of both of those things say something, don't they, about the empire? Yes. I mean, p people sometimes. Yes. Uh, so when people talk about colonialism and slavery, in a sense, they they essentialize it. They say, you know, the empire was essentially slavery. And some people talk about the imperial project as if someone woke up in London in 1600 and said, "Ooh, let's go and conquer the world." Mm -hmm. um, the truth is that the British Empire, and this is true of most empires, grew up um, um, not entirely by accident, but but in a very kind of ad hoc way. So. Um, um, initially, uh, Queen Elizabeth wants to uh, fend off the Spanish, so she commissions uh, Walter Raleigh and Francis Drake to go off and harry Spanish shipping and to set up uh, naval bases in, in uh, North America. Um, then the East India Company uh, um, uh, wants to trade with India, so people go to India to trade. Um, and then in the early 1800s, um, uh, people go out to India to trade, but also, since they're now responsible for government, they want to govern well. Mm. And they, they see um, quaint local practices like uh, having widows uh, burn themselves on the funeral pyres of their uh, late husbands, and they're appalled, along with many Indians, and they cooperate with Indians to ban the practice. Mm. 
Um, so th the, the motives for empire were very wide-ranging. Uh, no doubt at some point, at certain points, uh, certain Britons were racist. They were contemptuous of natives. Um, uh, many Britons were not contemptuous of natives. Many Britons, in fact, were fascinated by the the foreign cultures they came across, and and in India invested a lot of time in learning languages, in in recovering ancient texts. Um, so y yes, the, the empire <coughs> began all over the world for all sorts of different reasons, which is why. Um, whatever its sins, it, it's hard to say the thing was essentially evil um, because it, it depends <coughs> which bit you're talking about and, and what period you're talking about and where you're talking about. So in terms of the, of the beginning, you're quite right. And in terms of the end, yes, I mean, <coughs> um, it, it began to dissolve into the Commonwealth. It didn't end, it dissolved or, or loosened into a different um, uh, uh, form. It dissolved in different ways. I mean, by by the 1930s, um, the the predominantly white settler colonies, Australia, South Africa, New Zealand, Canada, were effectively independent, mm. except, except except I think for foreign defence and, and military matters. Um, and there was, all, there was always a, sen a sense in principle that um, uh, colonies would would have to become uh, independent in the in the end. Um, it, but it was thought in Africa in particular, and to some extent in India, that um, Africans and Indians weren't ready for independence, and that was truer of Africa than India. Um, but what brought about the, the, the dissolution of the empire in Africa and, and India was partly the Second World War. Britain was exhausted, um, and, and partly the rise of, of nationalist uh, uh, mm -hmm. sentiment um, that, that um, often the nationalists educated in, in Britain um, and nationalists were impatient. And there, there's, there's some good reason to suppose that um, it's a shame that nationalists were so impatient because um, Africa's development might have been better yeah. if British colonial rule had, had withdrawn more slowly and gradually than it did. Mm -hmm. um, but... Um, it didn't. It, the British Empire didn't simply disappear. The Commonwealth remains, and of course, close relations with um, Australia, New Zealand, Canada, uh, in in the Five Eyes intelligence program, militarily, culturally, still remains and is is a live factor. And to a large extent, the the post-war liberal international order that uh, America came to uh, lead uh, was shaped by the British Empire. It's interesting, you know, we, when we look at the Commonwealth, because you mentioned Prince Harry a bit uh, yes. earlier, and I think at one stage, uh, amongst the, you know, the inane remarks that he's making, uh, he said something like, we have to look at the uncomfortable aspects of Commonwealth. Um, and this was a while ago. Yes. But the fact is it, that it's entirely voluntary bodies. Yes. People actually yes. actively want to join it, don't they? Yes, and I, be <laughs> I believe that there is at least two countries that were never in the British Empire that um, applied and have, have been accepted. So I think uh, Mozambique, mm. which was Portuguese, and Rwanda, which was uh, Belgian. Mm. Um, yes, I, I think Harry was was being a bit loose with his language. He probably meant the um, um, the uncomfortable um, bits of the imperial past of 
most of the present Commonwealth. <laughs> well, I think that language is terribly important yes. to this, don't you? Yes, yes. Um, you mentioned at, uh, at the beginning there how basically colonialism and slavery are seen as one and the same thing, one defining the other. Yeah. Uh, but we've actually gone a step on from that now, it seems to me. If you look at the past few months and what's been happening with the Black Lives Matter protests and also the way in which our institutions uh, national, uh, the, the National Trust, but yes. also the British Library, the British Museum. Um, they appear to be defining British history in terms of slavery now. I yeah. mean, this is the message that's coming over, isn't it? That, that actually yeah. it's all based somehow on slavery. I mean, I, I've had sort of liberal, uh, well-educated friends of mine saying, well, all of our institutions are based on slavery. And I mean, this is just simply factually, historically, Ridiculous, isn't it? Yes, it is ridiculous, and, uh, and I've. Um, I wish my book were be, being published next month, not next year, um, because what distresses me about what you say, the fact that leaders of our cultural institutions have bought into this tale that uh, um, British history equals colonialism, equals slavery, equals evil, it's just so historically ignorant. Mm just historically ignorant. Um, and it disturbs me that people at the top of institutions have fallen over themselves to, to buy into it. So, um, I, I, I mean, one can't object to museums or country houses owned by the National Trust um, pointing out that, um, uh, let, let's say, Harewood House near Leeds, where I used to live, uh, that the, the wealth on which that was built was um, uh, from sugar plantations. So, you know, l l let's be honest about that. Um, there are people, there are families that profited from uh, slavery in this country, but uh, you might point out at the same time that uh, the only reason that the British um, were able to transport slaves across the Atlantic was because Africans sold slaves to them. Mm. Therefore, there are Africans, and maybe even, uh, let's say, um, British Nigerians or British West Africans, uh, who, who have uh, slave skeletons in their cupboard too, but we never hear about that. Mm. So, that, that's, so, so let, let's have a balance here. And um, um, as I was saying earlier, that there is the connection between Britain and slavery has both good and bad. Mm -hmm. uh, my impression is the National Trust, the British Museum, are all fixated on the bad, mm. um, um, whereas there, there's a good story that's more recent about which people know very little. I, I, I imagine uh, most people know about Wilberforce and the campaign to abolish it. I imagine most people do not know about the extent of British imperial commitment to, to suppress slavery worldwide for the following 150 years. I think it's just not emphasized. Yeah. That's the yes. point. Okay. It's not emphasized. Yes. Yes. Really. So uh, my, my if, if, if the head of the British Museum or National Trust were to ask me, I'd say, tell the bad bits. Yes, let's be honest about that. But please tell the good bits too, mm -hmm. uh, so that people don't get a distorted picture of, of the past. Uh, I noticed um, in Oxford, uh, there is the Pitt Rivers Museum, which is uh, devoted to, to mainly to natural history and anthropology. And um, 
Um, there was an article in, I think, the Telegraph, Sunday Telegraph, uh, a couple of weekends ago, uh, about um, someone who's published a book about uh, the British um, sacking of Benin in, in Nigeria. And um, it's all about uh, the brutality of that, uh, that event. And uh, this fellow who works in the museum you know, wants, to, wants to talk up and expose uh, the brutality of British colonialism. At the same time, the, the head of the same museum has withdrawn a set of, of shrunken heads which mm. had been on display. And these were um, taken from South America uh, where the, the natives had the custom of cutting off the heads of their enemies, shrinking them down, sewing up their lips and eyes to preserve the, the virility and the power of their enemies to somehow augment their own power. And she took these off display because she worried that people would uh, have racist thoughts about the the gruesome and primitive nature of um, uh, this um, South American culture. And my response in last Sunday's Telegraph letters pages was to say, well, let's have a level playing field, folks. Yeah, yeah. If you want to get upset about British brutality and gruesomeness, fine. But let's also see, be allowed to see, uh, the brutality and uh, gruesomeness of a South American culture uh, either that or um, don't tell us what you think, just show these things, let us judge for ourselves. When you look at what's happened over the past few months and, and the fact that this is now our institutions, the speed with which these institutions have started to sort of capitulate and, and emphasise uh, these particular things such as slavery, uh, do you, it's obviously embedded, Nigel, isn't it? it's embedded in the institutions and I just wondered you know, whether you see, as it were, the pendulum swinging back at all to uh, a more measured approach, or whether this is going to be the ongoing orthodoxy from now on, you know? Um, my, my answer is yes or no. I, I think this is the orthodoxy we will have to live with for a while, but it is a generational thing, is it not? So we, we have, yeah. in charge of our institutions, I guess people in the late 40s, early 50s, who uh, were educated in a certain period. Um, and if, if you follow imperial history, you, uh, as you would expect, there are fashions. And so um, I guess since about the 1990s, early, early noughties, uh, the, the kind of fashions that uh, we're seeing expressed in public now um, have reigned. Before then, there was a much more measured uh, appraisal of the British Empire. So my view is, you know, we've got people in charge and in prominent positions who will express these views. Uh, that's frustrating for someone like me. However, um, my perception is uh, that there is a reaction gathering. I, I suppose I'm part of it. Um, and I am able to speak freely, thanks <laughs> not least to you. I'm about to publish a book unless someone tries to stop it. Um, and judging by um, just going back three years to, to my own, the, the ruckus about uh, my own views on colonialism uh, in the press, um, uh, the Guardian virtually ignored the ruckus. Everyone else paid attention and letters to the press were overwhelmingly in favor of, of my views. And, and um, this is really important. There are plenty of people out there with non-white skins. Mm. Um, British Indians, British Iranis, Iranis, 
British people from, from Nigeria who agree with me, mm. right? So I think uh, there's no need to be despondent, but we do have to be persistent. Um, um, the, the only thing I know to do in the face of irrational emotion is to keep telling the truth yes. and hope that um, people who are not so excited will listen, and maybe in time those who are excited will calm down and listen too. I suppose that one way we could sort of maybe tell that things have really started to change is if when your book comes out, uh, the BBC decide to make a, <laughs> a programme about it, you know? <laughs> well, that, that, would be, that, that would be different, wouldn't it? Yeah. yeah well, yes, yes. Uh, let's, let's see if that happens um, uh, in the name of balance. I mean, right, right now, um, the wokists um, have the field. Uh, let's have a bit of balance in future. Well, look, Nigel, thank you very much for joining us today. And uh, when you do, when the book comes out, then uh, it'll be wonderful to have you back to talk I'd about it. I'd be very glad to come back, and thanks for the chance to talk no, to you. No, it's a pleasure. Uh, that's it for So What You're Saying is uh, today. Uh, obviously, please remember to subscribe, won't you, to the channel. And we'll see you next time. Thank you. <laughs>